say, uh, say, say goodbye to the fascinating people you just met, and uh, say, uh, say, say goodbye to the fascinating people you just met, and uh, news story that says it all started out with one self-destructive leap. There were some shepherds eating breakfast outside the town of Gevas, Turkey, and they were surprised when they watched one lone sheep jump off a nearby cliff and fall to its death. They were stunned, however, when the rest of the nearly 1,500 sheep in the herd followed, each leaping off of the same cliff. When it was all over, the local newspaper reports that 450 of the sheep perished in a billowy white pile. Uh, the ones that jumped from the middle and later on to the end were saved because the pile kept getting higher and the fall was more cushioned. Um, but the estimated loss to the families of this little community in Turkey topped $100,000, uh, which is extremely significant in a country where the average person at this point was earning about $2,700 a year. So you think about a story like, you think, what, what is that about? What makes sheep do something like that? And of course, the rap against sheep is that they are stupid. Uh, but this morning, let me clarify, there's a professor, her name is Jenny Morton. She's a neuroscientist at the University of Cambridge, decidedly not stupid. And she says that sheep have been greatly undervalued for their intelligence. She says, I, I didn't expect them to be so amenable to testing and certainly didn't expect them to be so smart. In our tests, they performed at a level very similar to monkeys and humans in the initial learning tasks. They are quite intelligent animals. They are able to recognize people and respond when you call their name. Now, farmers attest that sheep are also remarkable escape artists. They have been observed to lay down and roll commando style across a cattle grid in order to get across it. Um, alongside their intelligence though, sheep do have a very strong flocking and following instinct. Professor Morton again says they have a reputation of being extremely dim and their flock behavior backs that up as they are very silly animals when in a group. If there's a hole, they will all fall into it. If there's something to knock over, then they'll knock it over. They have a strong instinct to follow the sheep in front of them. When one sheep decides to go somewhere, the rest of the flock usually follows even if it is not a good decision. For example, sheep will follow each other to slaughter. If one sheep jumps over a cliff, the others are likely to follow. So what all this means then is that even though sheep are not stupid animals, as alleged, they still, because of this following instinct and a tendency to be easily frightened, they need a shepherd. Okay? Sheep need a shepherd. They need a good one not one that leaves their sheep at the cliff's edge while they go to grab breakfast. And for this reason, the scriptures, and Jesus in particular, often refer to people like us as sheep and their spiritual leaders as shepherds. 
And that's the story that Jesus is going to tell in our passage today. It's in John 10 in your Bibles. I'd like to invite you to turn there, and I'm going to pray for us as we uh, open up that portion of the Scripture. Bow with me, please. Spirit of God, take this word, shape it so it fills our hearts and minds with marvel at your wonder, the wonder of the Father who sends his Son for us. Um, help us now to be focused and open to your good work through your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 10 starts this way. Jesus is, is speaking and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So this little sheep story Jesus tells is kind of befuddling to his listeners. Um, and it's understandable. There are a number of angles and moving parts to the story. There are gates and shepherds and sheep coming and going, running this way and that and intruders who are climbing over walls, but there are a few things that are pretty clear. There's some sheep in a pen, there's restricted access through a single door or in sh more sheepishly a gate. Okay? The shepherd comes and goes through the gate while robbers and thieves, strangers from the sheep's perspective, who are up to no good, climb over the wall coming in some other way. So we have a contrast here between a shepherd and the stranger okay, that Jesus is building in his story. He starts his story and he says, truly, truly. Um, probably the modern equivalent would be something like seriously. Okay? Seriously. This is what I mean. According to the Urban Dictionary, that means really telling the truth. Okay? Seriously. And this expression, whenever Jesus uses it, whenever he says truly, truly, it has a little bit of a backward look as it connects what went before with what's to follow. Um, so to make sense out of who Jesus is talking to and why he's saying things, these things to them in chapter 10, we have to go back to chapter 9 just a little bit. In chapter 9, there was a man who was born blind. Jesus healed him <clears throat> on the Sabbath. This creates a ruckus amongst the religious leaders, especially some Pharisees, because they were opposed to Jesus and they care more about Sabbath rules than they do about the blind man's suffering. So when Jesus tells this sheep story, he has in mind his disciples probably, the man who is formerly known as blind, and these religious leaders, these Pharisees, who back in chapter 9, verse 16, we find were, were divided about who Jesus was. This is what they're saying. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. This is after he just healed the blind man on the Sabbath. 
But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. But as you read the rest of chapter 9, the prevailing opinion seems to be that they disbelieved him. They even opposed Jesus. And it's these leaders who rejected Jesus and urged others to do the same that he's targeting with this story about the sheep and shepherds and gates and strangers. Now again, in verse 6, Jesus used this figure of speech and they had trouble figuring out what he was saying to them. I'm not sure they wanted to hear what Jesus was saying to them. So Jesus goes on and he makes the meaning of his little sheep story very explicit in the verses that follow. And he's going to develop a couple of key elements from his sheep story. Starting in verse 7, Jesus, because they couldn't figure out what he meant, he again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus starts again, seriously, right? Truly, truly, I say to you. And then he says, I am am the door. I am the gate for the sheep. Now, these I am statements where Jesus says, I am this or I am that are very revealing in John's gospel. There are seven or eight of them, and they are Jesus' self-descriptive claims. He's telling us who he is when he says this. And so he says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life, for instance. So when Jesus says, I am the door or I am the gate of the sheep, he's revealing something about himself that really matters. As you think back through Jesus' story, there's only one gate for the sheep, right? Jesus is saying, I'm that gate. There's only one way where shepherds can come in for the good of the sheep. Anyone who enters another way is a wall climber and is up to no good. Okay. Remember how he started the story? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, that man's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. That's how he starts his story. There's a door. There's a way in for the sheep that's good for them. If you don't come through that gate, then you're up to no good, he's saying. Jesus, in, in verse 9 there, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I came that they might have life abundantly. There's only one gate. Jesus is claiming to be that gate. And how you access the gate determines whether you're for the sheep or up to no good. Okay. There are other actors in this story. They're thieves. They're robbers. They're wall climbers. And they come in by some other way than Christ. The sheep will not follow them. They're strangers to them. 
And they come in to steal and destroy, not for the good of the sheep. But don't miss it. Jesus says it twice. I am the door. I am the door. Just a couple pages later in your Bible, he says something very similar. Perhaps even more famously in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, this is another one of those seven I am statements in John. Jesus is making the same exclusive statement here that he makes in John 10. I am the way. I am the gate. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there are some writers out there, um, notably a man named Marcus Borg and a guy who seems to follow his thinking named Brian McLaren. They claim that this is exactly what Jesus is not saying in John 14. He's not saying he's the only way to God. And I think if you broaden the context and read him back to the language of John 10, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. The clear meaning is the meaning. He's saying there's no other way to the Father than through himself. These are exclusive claims. Jesus is the gate. The only way for sheep to come and go and to be saved and have abundant life, Jesus says, is through me. So Jesus looks at those who've just rejected him, and he tells this story about a gate to a sheepfold, and shepherds come in through the gate. Robbers and thieves are the ones who come some other way, and he says, I'm the gate. Essentially, he says, if you don't believe in me, you're numbered with the strangers and the robbers and the thieves. That's what he's saying to those leaders from chapter 9, and to leaders in our day as well. Now, in the following verses, he wants to draw out and explain another image from his sheep story. So, look with me at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. <clears throat> he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So here in our passage, we've got another one of the I am statements of Jesus, right? I am the door, I am the gate, and now he says, I am the good shepherd. And there's this vivid contrast between Jesus as the good shepherd and these, all these other guys, the wall climbers, right, who come in by another way than the gate, which we know the gate is Jesus in the story. There are thieves and robbers who are up to no good. They're there to harm the sheep and lead them astray. There are hired hands who don't care enough for the sheep to defend them. They're just in it for the money. There are strangers that the sheep don't know and they don't trust. And all these are pressed up against this description of the good shepherd. Just listen to this vivid contrast, okay? The shepherd enters by the gate. The others climb in some other way. The shepherd's voice is known to the sheep. The other's voice is not known. The sheep follow the shepherd. They won't follow the others. The shepherd comes to give life. The others come to steal and kill. The shepherd lays down his life. 
The others flee from danger. The sheep belong to the shepherd. They're his. The others are hirelings without ownership or investment. The shepherd knows his sheep and is known by them, and the others are strangers to him. So you've kind of got this good shepherd, bad shepherd contrast that's going on here. And that, that is based in, Jesus seems to be drawing this out of a passage in the Old Testament. Um, it's in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34. Let me give you just a flavor of what Ezekiel wrote about good shepherds and bad shepherds. Ezekiel says, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? He says again, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep. But the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep. Again, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. There's a lot of similarities. Can you hear them between this passage and what Jesus is saying? Okay. The shepherds are neglecting the sheep and using them for personal gain. So God steps in and God in Ezekiel 34 will be their shepherd. And in John 10, Jesus is claiming to be that shepherd, the good shepherd. And we'll see in a few minutes he makes that claim even more specific more clearly. But this passage in, in Ezekiel 34, it's a really sobering passage if you want to be a pastor someday. And I know some of you, that's your aspiration. You want to be a pastor or an elder in the church. And if you believe that God is calling you to be a pastor, let me challenge you. Sit, sit alone today. Spend some time reading Ezekiel 34 in its entirety. And then pray really hard for God to grant you a heart like his for the sheep. And to protect you from the dark, selfish hearts of the strangers and the hirelings. You should heed, if you want to be a pastor, heed the exhortation that Peter writes to pastors. He says, shepherd God's flock among you. Not overseeing out of compulsion, but freely, according to God's will. Not for the money, but eagerly. I think it's good counsel for young pastors to want to limit their lifestyle and live simply. Think about what you drive. Think about where you live. Put limits that protect your heart from thinking that you deserve better. That the sheep are there for your enrichment, not you for theirs. This attitude of living contentedly rather than seeking a bigger paycheck somewhere else helps pastoral tenure, which is good for the flock that pastors are around and learn about them and get to know their name. Jesus is the prototypical good shepherd for us here. He leads the sheep to places where they will flourish even if it costs him his life. He says it twice. I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Which, by the way, if you're a shepherd, it's a really bad business model. Okay? 
laying down your life for the sheep? No. They're not going to recommend that, you know, in, in your business classes. But it's really good shepherding that you love and care for the sheep that much. Jesus is a good, a really good, a seriously good shepherd. You can contrast that with uh, a bit of shepherding lore called the Judas goat. There actually is a thing called the Judas goat, even though now it's illegal in the European Union, as I understand it. I think they still exist in certain parts of the country. There was a documentary that filmed it in a packing house where sheep were being slaughtered for the meat market. They were huddled in pens outside um, all these hundreds of nervous sheep, and they seemed to sense the danger of their unfamiliar surroundings, the documentary says. Then a gate was opened that led up a ramp and through a door to the right. In order to get the sheep to walk up that ramp, the handlers used what is known as a Judas goat. This is a goat that's been trained to lead the sheep into the slaughterhouse. The goat in the documentary says did his job very efficiently. He confidently walked to the bottom of the ramp and looked back. And then he took a few more steps and stopped again. The sheep looked at each other skittishly and then began moving toward the ramp. Eventually, they followed the confident goat to the top where he went through a little door to the left but they were forced to turn to the right and went to their deaths. See, sheep, sheep are built to follow a shepherd. Okay? And they need a good shepherd, one who will lay down his life for the sheep, not one who will lead them to the slaughter. Jesus says unequivocally, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And there's singularity here. Jesus is not saying, I'm a good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. He is saying, the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. There's an exclusivity to what he's teaching. All who profess other ways, other gates, other doors are wall climbers and hirelings. See, Jesus is both, in this story, the gate and the good shepherd. Okay? It takes both of those images to capture what he's teaching. And when he refers to the shepherd giving his life for the sheep, he is anticipating the cross. Just a page or two later in your Bibles, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. John would write elsewhere, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. Jesus, singularly, uniquely, exclusive of all others, is the gate for the sheep. He alone is entitled the good shepherd. Now, this is not some isolated verse that we are mishandling. It's the widespread teaching of the Bible, especially the New Testament, about Christ. Jesus taught it elsewhere. Listen to what Jesus taught before this in chapter 8. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. John would write elsewhere, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God 
does not have life. Paul would write about it this way. He'd say there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony at the proper time. Luke would write the words that Peter would preach. And they say this about Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under which heaven under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is not some isolated claim. This is, this is the emphasis of the entirety of all of the writers of the New Testament. Jesus is the gate. He's the good shepherd. There's no other way. One of my favorite uh, Bible commentators, and if you've been around a while, you've heard me quote him. His name is Dale Bruner, and I love him to death. He's a fascinating, insightful man who writes with a great passion for Jesus, but he's not the most conservative of commentators, and nobody would ever accuse Dale Bruner of being a fundamentalist, okay? But listen to what he says about this issue we're talking about, about the exclusivity of Jesus as the gate and the good shepherd and no others. He quotes John 14, 6, and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He says, I had a very personal yet public experience with this text not long ago. I was giving Bible studies in the morning at a week-long Lutheran pastor's conference, and Dr. Kumari, a lovely Asian Indian woman, was giving the evening platform addresses. And now he describes what was going on here. She is the president of a Lutheran church in India and uh, other important things. She's a very impressive woman. He says, in the mornings, he says, I'm teaching the gospel of John that we're reading. Chapter 1, for all I was worth. As it is everywhere in John's gospel, the theme is the exclusivity of Christ. One thinks, for example, he says of John 1.18, no one has ever seen God before, but God, the only Son who is at the very heart of the Father, He has explained God. But in the evenings, Dr. Kumari was teaching that, indeed, Christ is the way for the Christian, but she added, in India, a sincere Hindu could also go to God, and Buddhists could find their way to God too. Um, the ordinary way of salvation is sincere devotion to one's own religious tradition she was teaching. So he says, Dr. Kumari and I are teaching at the same conference, going in opposite directions. He says, it is bad form at a conference for one speaker to contradict another. All week long, I wrestled with this inclusive, exclusive issue. And this is the conclusion I came to and shared with the conference on the last morning. In the past, he says, when asked what my theological position was, I have described myself as a Christo- or Christocentrist. Okay. He says, but now I realize that's not an adequate answer. I am a Christo-exclusivist. Dr. Kamari is absolutely Christ-centered. He says she loves the Lord Jesus Christ, no questions about it. But I've come to realize this week that for me, Christ is not only the center, he's the circumference. He is the only way to the responsible knowledge of or participation in saving truth. Christ, he says, is exclusive. Jesus is not making these claims in a real narrow, confined way that were just for one group of people a long time ago in a land far, far away. Okay? There's a universal 
for all times, for all people kind of ring to what Jesus is claiming. And you pick it up in the very next verse after we stopped in chapter 10. Verse 16 reads this way. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, this pen, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what Jesus is saying here, the sheep in his pen story were Jewish sheep, okay? And he has other sheep outside of that group that the New Testament would refer to as Gentiles. Another way to render that is nations. An even better way to render that is us, okay? Jesus is talking about you and me here in all likelihood, unless you're of Jewish descent. He's saying here, I have other sheep, and he has us in mind, the nations in mind that are not of this group of sheep, and I must bring them also. This underlies what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 when he writes about Jews and Gentiles becoming one in Christ. He says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, the nations, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, Jesus is the gate for all people for all times. He is the good shepherd everyone, every people needs. That's why when Revelation describes what's going around the throne before Christ in all eternity. This is what it describes. It says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, Christ, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Christ is their gate. Christ is the good shepherd. Now, these are audacious claims to make, to be the way, the truth, and the life. And many people stumble over them, wondering, how can he make such exclusive claims? Jesus gives us a couple reasons why he's qualified to make these claims in our passage. Look at the next two verses in verse 17. Jesus says, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, think crucifixion, that I may take it up again. Think resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus' exclusive claims can be made because he has authority over life and death. Okay? These exclusive claims that Jesus are making can be made because he's making them on God's authority. Right? But even more than that, just a few verses later, listen to what Jesus says. The Jews gather around him, verse 24, and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And if you read on just a few verses, the Jews picked up stones and tried to kill him because he, a man, was making himself to be equal with God. Jesus can make these exclusive claims because He's one with the Father. He is God. And because of that, Jesus can be for us the door, the gate. He is for us the good shepherd. Now, what does this sheep story mean for us as we think as a church family about this third circle? We're learning how to be devoted to the great loves that Jesus calls us to, to love God, to love His people, the church, to love one another, and to love our neighbors who are outside of Christ. How does all this affect that? Let me ask you a question first that I think will help us think about it. Um, Give me a show of hands on this. How many of you have a friend who doesn't know Christ but is a pretty good moral person? Okay? Show of hands, right? Okay, most of us know people outside of Christianity, and they're good folks. They're moral people, sometimes better than us, it feels like at points. What Jesus' teaching means here is they can't be good enough, okay? There's no separate gate for people who are good enough. They can't find their own way to the Father, no matter how good they are, no matter how upright they look to you. They need a shepherd and a savior, too. They need a gate to come in and out into what God offers them. Jesus uses shepherd and sheep imagery regarding this that's as old as the prophet Isaiah. It was written in Isaiah three-quarters of a millennium before Jesus was even born. And Isaiah writes, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. We all have gone astray. Every one has turned to his own way. We all need a shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep, to bring us back to God. If your good friend doesn't trust Christ to bear the penalty of her sin, she will have to bear it herself for all eternity. There is no other gate. John Ortberg warns us through story about finding our own way to God. He says, my friend Jimmy and his son Davey were playing in the ocean down in Mexico where his family, his wife, daughters, parents, and a cousin were on the beach. Suddenly, a rogue riptide swept Davey, his son, out to the sea, and immediately Jimmy started to do whatever he could do to help Davey get back to the shore, but he too was soon swept away in the tide, and he knew that in a few minutes, both he and Davey would drown. He tried to scream, but his family couldn't hear him. He says, Jimmy's a strong guy. He's an Olympic decathlete. 
But he was powerless in this situation. And as he was carried along by the water, he had a single chilling thought. My wife and my daughters are going to have a double funeral. Meanwhile, his cousin, who understood something about the ocean, saw what was happening and he walked out into the water where he knew there was a sandbar and he had learned that if you try to fight a riptide, you will die. So he walked to the sandbar, stood as close as he could get to Jimmy and Davy, and then he just lifted his hand up and he shouted out to them, you come to me, you come to me. And that was the difference between life and death for Jimmy and his son Davy. Ortberg says, if you try to go the way your gut tells you to go in a situation like that, the shortest distance into shore, you will die. If you think for yourself and try to figure out your own way, you will die. God says, if you come to me by the gate I have provided, you will live. But there is only one gate, Jesus is teaching us here. And he is that gate. There is no special gate for people who are good enough. Jesus is their gate too. Now, let me ask another question. Give me another show of hands. How many of you have friends who are people of another faith outside of Christianity? Okay. All right. Again, a, a boatload of us have friends who are Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or one of the estimated 4,000 religions that are in our world today. Um, according to Jesus, these people, perhaps especially those who lead them in those faiths, are wall climbers. There is no other gate outside of Jesus in his teaching. As we've seen time and time again from every conceivable biblical angle, Scripture presents Jesus and His great sacrificial work on the cross. It's the only hope, the only gate, the only way, the only shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep and make knowing and relating to God possible. And it is, it is of the utmost importance that you grasp this because statistics tell us that most Christians don't believe this, what Jesus is teaching us today. There was a study by the Pew uh, Institute recently on the American religious landscape, and adults who identified with a specific religion were asked whether they see their religion as the one true faith leading to eternal life, or if in their view, many religions can lead to eternal life. And so, the Christians who were asked this question, there was a stunning revelation. Two-thirds of Christians believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Many people who profess to follow Jesus and his teaching believe there are other gates. Jesus is not teaching that. He is teaching that he is the gate, the way, the truth, and the life for everyone, for all peoples. In 2002, there was another study by the U.S. News and World Report. People who call themselves Christians were asked this question. Um, the religion you practice is the only true religion. 19% of Christians said yes. In our language, 19% of Christians said Jesus is the way. Jesus is the gate. He's the door for the world, for everyone, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
seminary president Al Mohler wisely says, if all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, the Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion and need and hope, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If all we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If all we need is a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self, he says, for crying out loud, Oprah will do. <laughs> but if we need a savior, he says, only Jesus will do. Only Jesus is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for your friends of other faiths. Christ is the only door. He is the only way. The only sure hope for not just sheep, in that Jewish fold, but Jesus says, of other folds. What does all this mean for us as we learn to be devoted to loving our neighbors? We must tell our neighbors about Jesus. He is their only hope. Okay. There is no other hope for our neighbors, be they good or be they Hindu or Muslim or Buddhist, outside of Jesus. And He is all the hope they need. He's the hope of the world. I love the way Dale Bruner describes it. He says, Christ is the exclusive way to God vertically. Yet the witnesses to Christ in the New Testament portray him as remarkably inclusive in his outreach to the world horizontally. We should preach Christ as the only way of salvation. Onto this firm vertical beam of the exclusivity of Christ must be nailed the horizontal beam of the inclusivity of Christ, which is as wide as the world, as far-reaching as the most desperate sinners, and is thus represented impressively in the gospel witness. Christ is the only door, but that door opens to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Okay. He is the gate for us all. And so our evangelism must focus not on lesser things, but on Jesus we must ask what they believe about Jesus, what they've read about Jesus, what they know about Jesus. Have they read his biographies? They're short. Would you like to read them together? That's what our evangelism should focus on. We must tell our friends about Jesus. He is the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the hope that they need. And now we as a church family, we get to come to this table. We get to remember our good shepherd. But at Northwake, this table is for those who believe and trust in Jesus and are currently walking in fellowship with Him. We are willing to repent of our sin by His grace and come to this table and worship Him. If you are not yet a believer in Jesus, then let me encourage you, listen to the words of a man named John Wycliffe. He was responsible in large part for helping engineer and, and get started the translation of the English Bible that many of you hold in your laps today. Listen to what he says, the invitation that he gives to you. He says, trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. 
There must be atonement made for sin according to the righteousness of God. The person to make this atonement must be God and man. Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. Believe in Jesus and you will live, he says. For those of us who trust in Christ, at this table we remember the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love for us. We remember that he is our good shepherd who laid down his life for us. The Apostle Paul says that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.